Well, I sure am glad that you woke up today because I needed another listener for the Agents of Innovation podcast. But I'll tell you what, I bet you that when you woke up today, sometime before your morning was finished, you had a cup of coffee, didn't you? Well, I'm placing my bet on the fact that more than half of American adults have at least one cup of coffee every day. And I know I have mine in the morning. I try not to do it right when I wake up, but sometime before that mid-morning break, I got to have a cup of coffee. And you know, did you ever stop and pause and think, where did this coffee come from? How was it made? How did it get to me? Because coffee's not made in the United States. I mean, it's made in a particular region of the world, usually in the tropics, somewhere not too far from the equator. And, uh, you know, I spent uh, most of my 2021 in Guatemala, and I got my fill of some great Guatemalan coffee. Actually, you can never get your fill. You just always got to have more, right? Because it's so addicting. But it's so good, and it's so fresh, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of coffee farms all around Guatemala alone, not to mention all the other countries in Central America, not to mention where it comes from Africa and other parts of Asia. And it comes all that way and it gets to you. But do you know how much of what you spend on that coffee actually gets back to the coffee farmer? We're going to hear about that today from my guest, Mike Manina. Mike is uh, part of a company called Thrive Farmers. And along with the other folks there at that company, it's a for-profit company, they also created Thrive Works. That's W-O-R-X, Thrive Works. And Mike is the co-founder and CEO of Thrive Works. But they are a social enterprise, both on the for-profit end and also doing some great work on the nonprofit end with Thrive Works. So we're going to hear all about that. Uh, their products are sourced from places like Guatemala, Costa Rica, and Brazil, among other places. And they have some great buyers like Chick-fil-A. And so you've probably drank some of the coffee that you're going to hear about. If you've, if you've ever drank coffee from Chick-fil-A, you'll probably hear about that coffee and where it's made and, and the great work that Thrive Farmers and Thrive Works is doing to make sure as much of the funds and profits from that coffee go back to the source of where they were made in um, Central America, South America, to those actual coffee farmers. And then what Thrive Works does on the back end to help provide more sustainability through their nonprofit for some of the communities that those coffee farms are in. And you know, this is going to solve a lot of other problems, whether it's challenges with the environment, deforestation, or whether it's the mass migration coming out of Latin America. Mike is going to talk to us here about how economics actually is going to solve a lot of the problems if we put our focus in the right areas and Thrive Farmers and Thrive Works believe they are really onto something. And Mike is an amazing agent of innovation. I am so thrilled to have him here on episode 99 of the Agents of Innovation podcast uh, because he's going to walk us through what he his journey has been. You know, when he was an undergraduate at the University of Georgia, he had a very impactful trip to Peru where he saw really just intense, intense poverty. And he thought, this is not right. This is not right. This is not the way the world should work. And he then went on a mission for the rest of his life, discovered what his why was, uh, that things that he wanted to help solve, poverty he wanted to help alleviate. 
And first, he took that route through government. He worked in Congress. He worked in the White House. Uh, he also served in the U.S. Treasury as an attache to Saudi Arabia, where he and his wife lived for three years in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they came back, uh, and Mike has you know a great story of that, the fact that he could have had a lot of other lucrative jobs, but his father was suffering from leukemia, and he went back to his home state of Georgia to be close to his father. And then that led him on a path to be involved with Thrive Farmers and later create Thrive Works. So we're going to hear all about Mike's journey on Agents of Innovation, episode 99 here. My name is Francisco Gonzalez. I'm the host of the Agents of Innovation podcast. 99 episodes. We've been doing this for over six years. And earlier this year, I also created a company called Fearless Journeys to help you and others connect with some of the former guests on the Agents of Innovation podcast, many of whom who have stepped up to lead group coaching sessions, to guide us through books that they were that were formative to them. And uh, we provide book summaries every week. And every month we have one of those featured innovators get on, not just for a group coaching session, but also to get on and lead us through some of those book club calls. And we have group trips as well. And we just did our first group trip to Guatemala, went to a coffee farm. We went to the San Patricio Coffee Finca in uh, Palencia, Guatemala. And we learned, and you're going to hear a little bit about this in our conversation with Mike, but we learned all about the process of how coffee is made and how it gets to us. Visited with a, just a wonderful family there, the Reyes Mendez family. So hopefully I'll bring Mike Menina to that coffee farm one day. He's been to so many others across Guatemala helping so many coffee farmers. Um, I also want to uh, mention that at the end of this podcast, we're going to hear um, a song by Steve Everett. You might have heard Steve way back on episode um, three, episode three of the Agents of Innovation podcast. Unbelievable. Uh, we are now going to feature a song like we do at the end of every uh, episode of the Agents of Innovation podcast. We always end with the song. So uh, make sure you stick around so you can hear the song called The Only Way by Steve Everett. This is actually a fresh new song. He's got a, a brand new music video out for it too, but uh, The Only Way by uh, by Steve Everett. I also want to thank one of the sponsors of the Fearless Journeys community, Dan Lesniak. You heard Dan a couple times now on the Agents of Innovation podcast, and I'm just so thrilled that uh, he has decided to sponsor the Fearless Journeys community. And Dan, along with his wife, Carrie Scholl, has built the number one selling real estate team in the District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia. That's the DMV, helping over 1,000 buyers and sellers each year. Dan is also a best-selling real estate author and co-founder of the Hyperfast Agent Podcast and Coaching Program. In his latest venture, Dan has raised nearly $15 million in equity from investors to acquire and develop over 200 condo units in the Washington, D.C. area. We are grateful that Dan is not only one of 45 featured innovators that you can connect with in the Fearless Journeys community, but he's also chosen to invest in this community as a sponsor. So I want to thank Dan so much uh, and be sure to visit uh, his community, uh, the Hyperfast Agent Podcast and the Hyperfast Agent Coaching Program. Um, and just thank you so much to Dan Lesniak and also to his wife, Carrie Scholl. So we're going to sit back and maybe pour a cup of coffee, think about where it came from, and learn a little bit more about where it came from 
and how we can help solve a lot of global problems, including some of our own in our own backyard here in Central America, why basically changing the economics of the situation with great healthy partners like Thrive Farmers and Thrive Works. So here we go, episode 99 with Mike Menina. I would like to welcome uh, my friend Mike Menina to episode 99 yeah. of the Agents of Innovation podcast. Mike, thanks for joining us. Francisco, great to see you. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, this is great. So, uh, Mike, I'm currently uh, down in South Florida right now, uh, recording this from uh, actually my parents' home in Boynton Beach uh, because I'm on a little reprieve uh, from uh, a place that you and I both love, uh, Guatemala. Uh, and I know you're in Atlanta, and I saw you in Guatemala in July. We like cross paths while you were actually mostly on vacation with your family, but I know you do a lot of work in Guatemala. And then we just missed each other uh, a few weeks ago in November. I was trying to get episode 99 in with you in Guatemala because that would be so cool. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. Uh, but uh, yeah, you're you're in Atlanta now. Yeah, north of the city. Uh, we're ready for Christmas up here. It's the end of the year. <laughs> it's good. Things yeah. Well, so Mike, let me introduce you to my audience. Uh, you know, as as uh, some may have heard of you, Mike Menina uh, joined in 2015. He joined an award-winning social impact coffee and tea company called Thrive Farmers uh, to lead its impact strategy and launched Thrive Works, a sister nonprofit dedicated to disrupting poverty through market-driven collective action. Uh, today, Thrive Farmers and Thrive Works Duo has been dubbed by B-Lab the best for the world by bringing customers exceptional coffees, teas, and more while helping farmers earn up to 300% higher profits. We're going to get into that in just a little bit, Mike. But Thrive Works then spurs locally-led development by equipping community leaders with a holistic development approach and a network of global resources. But prior to leading ThriveWorks, uh, Mike served in various roles within the U.S. government in Washington, D.C. and the Middle East. He served in the, uh, as the U.S. Treasury attache to Saudi Arabia, advised economic development efforts in Afghanistan and the Middle East, and worked in the White House. Mike also served as a research assistant to Heritage Foundation founder Ed Fulner and interned for a member of Congress. And Mike, we can get into a lot of things here, but I do want to uh, list a few things on your resume because uh, you're certainly an agent of innovation and uh, some of the accolades you've racked up. You were named a Council on Foreign Relations team member from 2014 to 2019, and you received the University of Georgia's 40 Under 40 Award. Uh, you also hold a business and journalism degree from the University of Georgia and a Master of Arts in Strategic Studies from the U.S. Naval War College. But maybe most importantly, Mike, you're a husband and father of three energetic children that were probably swimming and kayaking all over Lake Atitlan in Guatemala, and I know you're active in your local church. Uh, Mike loves learning, reading, trail running, and virtually anything outdoors. Again, another reason why you probably love Guatemala. But Mike, thank you again for being on the Agents of Innovation <laughs> okay. podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've been on quite a journey, so this is really fun to unpack some of it. Yes, it is. So, Mike, speaking of your journey, uh, you know, you see behind me, if those that are watching on video, 
Uh, I started a company this year called Fearless Journeys, which really takes a lot of the uh, folks that have been previous guests on my podcast, elevates them as role models. And, 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 and actually, we do a lot of group coaching sessions. Uh, we have a book of the month club. Uh, but most important part about this community is we're trying to help people build an entrepreneurial mindset as they embark on their own journey. And really, we're trying to encourage them to be fearless, bold, courageous. I, when I read your bio, I think you know you're you're somebody who has been on a fearless journey. You're continuing your journey. The journey uh, always continues. Um, but speaking of your journey, we want to go back to the start. That's that's where that's where okay. journeys are. So I'm sure we could. Uh, I'm sure we could. There's probably a lot of child development we can get into. But first and foremost, I want to get to uh, since since this is all about entrepreneurship, Mike. What was your first job in life? It could be anything, and and then, you know, what did you learn from it? And, and maybe how might it impact you today? Yeah, um, I love starting there because I used to joke with like interns and people that, uh, you know, young people that we invest in as a company now. And I've noticed a lot of them haven't worked at all until after college. And I started my first job. Uh, I was cutting my own grass uh, at my house when I was starting at nine years old and my dad gave me $4 to cut. It, it was not a full acre, but it was like, I mean, it was, it was a couple hours of, of pretty hard work. And I was so proud of the $4 I would earn uh, to do that. And, uh, and I worked, I feel like I worked every day since then. I, I got a job as a, uh, as a, a tenant, I used to play tennis and I worked at the tennis facility and took care of members. I coached a swim team. I worked at McDonald's. I worked at Chick-fil-A taking orders. So I think I kind of all throughout from nine on was always working in some way. And frankly, it, it really did. I think it gives you, if you start working early, uh, it gives you an appreciation of a lot of different roles. It gives you, I mean, I remember working at McDonald's and thinking, this is the hardest job that must exist. Like you're standing on your feet for eight to 10 straight hours. You are sweating, you're problem solving, you're uh, you're dealing with angry customers uh, at Chick-fil-A. Luckily, the customers were not as angry. <laughs> no, no offense to my McDonald's friends. But, um, you know, so so I think all of those experiences really did set me up when I went to Washington. Uh, I was already pretty scrappy. I kind of understood how to navigate a lot of different scenarios. So I look back to those early jobs uh, as both a work ethic uh of, of sacrifice and not feeling like, okay, I'm too good for any job. I mean, I really was like just happy to serve in some way. Um, and then problem solving and customer service, just dealing with people. Uh, and when you do that early, you can learn a lot. And, and, you know, I do, I am one having read a lot of classics to see that I, I do think humankind doesn't really change much <laughs> throughout history. And so the earlier that you tap into understanding how we as humans interact with each other, uh, the more success I think in a career you can have since everything revolves around people. Yeah. And Mike, good, good to um, remind us about the standing up all day. I, I actually worked the drive through at Taco Bell before I worked some retail jobs such as at a Kenneth Cole, uh, you know, shoe store. I worked at Disney uh, uh, running some rides. 
Yeah, you're standing up all day. And by the way, if you're at Disney running rides in the summer, you're sweating the heck off too as well. Uh -huh. As I imagine, you must have been uh, in those Georgia summers pushing that lawnmower. <laughs> exactly. And in McDonald's, it was down in Florida in the middle of the summer. Uh, so it was always hot. <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, um, so Mike, uh, that was a little more of your, uh, maybe where you built some work ethic early on. Uh, tell us uh, your educational journey, particularly from high school to college to grad school, the Naval War College, uh, and, and then beyond that, where did that take you? Yeah, I mean, for me, life is uh, like learning. So I am not one that's huge, huge on the formal education channels, though my journey was uh, going off to a public school that I had a scholarship for. So I was, I was trying to stay within a budget. Uh, I went to the University of Georgia, had a great experience. The best part of it was the, the people, the leadership opportunities outside of the classroom. Inside of the classroom, you know, I was, I, I have like a dual brain. I have a very right, right brain. Uh, I need to kind of focus on uh, the kind of the creative uh, side and, and, and that, and then the left brain on the, the numbers. Um, and so I, I enrolled in the business school and studied finance and the kind of the basics of, of business. And I loved that. I loved spreadsheets. I loved, I loved accounting. I remember uh, getting a hundred on every accounting exam for my whole one year of accounting, which is bizarre, right? Like I didn't, who knew that uh, that would even be a thing. And then, but at the same time, I, I needed like a creative outlet. And so I had to enroll in the journalism school and got a completely different, I, you know, advertising and journalism was coming from even kind of politically different perspective, a lot more creative types than in the business school. And one, you know, interesting thing about that was the school at the time wasn't set up for you to be dual enrolled. So I had to go, I was told, no, sorry, you had to pick one school or the other. And I, I basically, this will tell you something. And I would always recommend this for all young people or anyone's like, you've got to be proactive when you know, you really need to do something. Nobody's going to make it easy. So even in college, I remember having to go all the way up to the like the vice chancellor of the school or something just to be able to get them to authorize me to be enrolled in both the journalism school and the business school and i did it and um apparently it paved the way for other students to be able to do the same in the future which i'm excited i always love that people can benefit so um that scratched both of those kind of the the numbers side and the creative side but it was in in college each summer you know, there's always this temptation to go just do a, a internship in like a professional setting. And for whatever reason, I never, I never did that. I always spent my summers doing things that were just off the beaten path. And so one summer took me down to Peru and I, I don't want to get, all, I mean, I know you talked about education, but I think this is all insightful. No, this is great. And, uh, and so I had a two month, uh, grant that would pay for me to be in Peru. And I was a volunteer in an orphanage and it, it totally wrecked my world of seeing the disparity of these kids who had no parents uh, who lived in way below the poverty line. 
And I just felt like this is not how we were created. This is not true flourishing. Uh, and it really, it really broke my heart. It really uh, caused me to question a lot of things. And it put me on a, a deep journey to figure out what, what can I do in my life to alleviate some of this suffering? Again, I mean, I wasn't thinking you could solve it all. And that's what really brought me to Washington. So as I, as I went to DC, again, education for me was much more learning by doing than formal. And uh, as I was working in government, working in international affairs, national security work, I was super intrigued with uh, you know, all of those fields. And so I got an opportunity to, to enroll in the Naval War College's master's program, which is really designed for officers uh, in the Navy, but they open up really smart. The Navy really understands Washington. They open it up to Hill and White House staffers. Um, and, and as you know, if you know Washington, the purse string resides in Congress. And so it's, it's always in an agency's interest to have congressional staffers who are helping write the, the budgets. Uh, so you were not a, uh, you did not have a military background. You were no, a civilian, I had, civilian I was working. Civilian. Yeah. 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 Civilian working in the space and intrigued by all, like, you know, in all international affairs and military power is a huge portion of, of the United States' influence, though not its entirety. Um, business is, I would argue, business and culture is, is far more uh, long-lasting, impactful, but you need all of those, right? So getting, I, it took me, you know, I was not the best student. It took me four years to do a one-year master's program, but, you know, I was working at the White House, really long hours. I was, I fell in love and got married and we had our first kid all in that time period. So uh, the four years was, that was about as fast as I could go. Um, so, so this was all right out of college. Uh, so let's, I just want to back it up a little bit, because first of all, uh, a bit of a trailblazer at University of Georgia, uh, convincing that the administration and the, and the uh, apparatus there to, to, to create, allow you to do this dual major uh, that really were two totally different things, which is kind of interesting to me now that uh, I know a little bit more. and We'll get it to your story about the dual nature of maybe your business model now as well. Um, yes. And then... Um, and then the impact that that you know the Peru experience had in seeing the children in the orphanage and, and the extreme poverty there, uh, and then of course uh, I always love when people use words that I've heard multiple times by entrepreneurs: learn by doing. Uh, as I reviewed a lot of the episodes, uh, as I'm, I'm actually writing a book, Mike. Uh, uh, actually, I'm going to probably put you in it now because you're in the first 100 episodes about <laughs> what right. I've learned about entrepreneurs through through these 100 conversations and I and I see this learn by doing trend uh constantly it's it's so that's that's super interesting to me as well but then you went off and and you um so tell me a little bit about what you were doing in the White House and and then what led you uh to the next stages of you know doing some work in the Middle East right so I, I entered DC right out of college and it was it was a mentor of mine a former exec at coca-cola who uh, I, I owe a lot to uh, Earl Leonard, who a lot of people at the University of Georgia uh, have been greatly benefited by him. And we were part of this leadership cohort that he had sponsored. And 
sitting with him and trying to process Peru and what I wanted to do with my life. And, and I can't do his full accent, but he has this great Southern deep voice. And he would be like, Michael, you need to go to Washington, DC, you know? And I was like, okay, okay. It sounds great. So I had, I had interviewed with all these companies in Atlanta and I, you know, I was like, wow, this is just not satisfying. Like this is, I don't feel like I want to spend my life selling things like widgets for big corporations. Uh, again, no offense. It just it was not my track. So anyway, that's how I got to Washington. And I started on Capitol Hill, had a couple years in a think tank and really learned a lot from uh, the founder of that think tank, uh, Dr. Fulner and, uh, and that opened the door. It was a, towards the end of the Bush administration. It was like 2006. Um, and I was really wanting to be part of that team. And, you know, I had actually interviewed multiple times, uh, but I was, I had not, I had not worked on the campaign and a lot, if anyone knows the white house, any administration, uh, the loyalties of how you hire and staff your White House, for the most part, require that you have done campaign work um, and shown your that you've been loyal to the cause. Well, I had campaigned for uh, my member of Congress that I was interning for during the 2004 campaign, and I had held down the office while all the permanent staff members were out campaigning, but I had not formally like check the box. So basically it was really, really hard. And I kept getting rejected and rejected, rejected. So I was kind of like, I guess I'm not going to be able to work at the white house. And I, I was at peace with that. And then of course get a call and they're like, Hey, uh, come interview for this role, uh, in the legal counsel's office. And I had, I had, you know, I had no desire to like, I had no legal background. Um, but anyway, I went in and I I've, I had learned from my past interviews that you've got to show 100% enthusiasm. And I was so hungry to work there that I just was like beg, basically begging them, like, you have to give me this shot. I, I am not going to let you down. I felt like Alexander <laughs> Hamilton, you know, don't throw away the shot. So I got, I got hired and the first six months, I think I made, I don't know tens to hundreds of thousands of copies of legal documents in response to congressional inquiries. Cause this was like towards the end of the Bush administration. And, and uh, I think the Democrats were in control of the house at that point. And it was just like uh, every day we were getting another inquiry for documents and we would have to produce all the stuff. So anyways, it was a, it was quite an experience, but after you know eight or so months of doing that faithfully, uh, I got an opportunity to move to the to the Homeland Security Council and work with HSC and the, the National Security Council. Which so you moved really, your, you you moved up from being chief photocopier to uh, to Homeland Security. I see how things. Yeah, work. it was it was exactly what I had been really wanting and passionate, and I had not pursued. I mean, it just it did fall into place. So I think as I kind of like counsel young people now on career journeys, it's like look there's value in knowing what you want and like building a path towards it. There's also a value in pursuing things that you really enjoy along the way. And then being willing to 
jump at opportunities that open that, you know, open doors, though, you may not know which doors they open. And I was more in that ladder camp of just kind of like finding amazing opportunities that would just kind of come and then knowing to strike and go into them and be willing to make tons of copies. It wasn't like I was, you know, like it wasn't my gifting. It wasn't like what I had always dreamed of doing, but it was for a cause that I believed in. And I was like, if I'm going to make copies, I'm going to make the best copies out there. And if the machine keeps jamming, I'm going to learn the Xerox machine and I'm going to learn how to fix it. So I don't have to call somebody and wait two days. Like I just would figure things out. Uh, I was the guy who brought a vacuum into the white house to vacuum the office because we had spilled like copy paper, like all these little shreds all over the floor. And it was the day before the new interns were going to start. And I just was like, you can't have interns coming to the white house and looking like this. And I put an order in for the cleaning service and it was like, you know, long delayed. And I was, yeah, I basically was like, great, I'll take care of this myself. I brought a vacuum cleaner in, had to put it through the secret service uh, x-ray machine, got so many looks of like, what is this guy doing? So just random things, right? You, you just gotta, you've got to pursue and like go hard after whatever needs to be done. So I was willing to do that. Um, well, yeah, you got me. So bringing a vac, we've come on Mike's journey got- to bringing a vacuum oh cleaner gosh. into the White House. Into the this White is, House. Uh, I mean, I've never heard this before, so that's pretty funny. I don't think many, I probably have not like publicly shared this. The guy, I, I, I got a, a friend used to carpool. He was a senior staff, so he had parking on site. So we get to like drive in the gates. And and this is funny, just, just for you. Well I, well, I share this with the audience. I don't know if they care, but the guy was so embarrassed that he was like, I'm going to walk ahead and I am going to pretend like I don't know you. Like we did not ride together and you stay behind. And he was like that embarrassed because I had to bring the vacuum into his car. Anyways, That's hilarious. So. Well, uh, so Mike, uh, yeah, so you got into the Homeland Security role and tell us a little bit about uh, that experience and, and where that led right. you. So that was, yeah, you know, working in that role in the White House, you see a lot. You see, um, so I was supporting a specific office and then got promoted into the West Wing, into the, the Homeland Security Advisor's office uh, and was kind of like the strategy whip, I say, of the organization. So we had you know, eight different directorates that reported up into us that covered the gamut of, you know, counterterrorism work to disaster response to nuclear policy. It was kind of like everything in between. So there's a there's obviously like a wide array of information and of um, issues that was coming to that office. But the main vision and goal of it was to prevent threats to Americans on American soil was kind of the role of that piece. Um, and the, to harmonize all of the policy amongst the, 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 the agencies and um, departments that implemented those, those policies. So uh, it was a fast paced experience, uh, lots and lots of hours and working around some of the greatest human beings on the planet. Um, some of the most committed, the most, uh, intelligent, the most humble. It was a really great team. So I think for me that that shaped both a couple of things. It it shaped my expectation of of what humans could do when you work well together, and what people who are really committed to a mission can accomplish. Um, 
it's hard to find that. So that every role post that season in any organization has, has always been slightly less of like a committed group than that. Um, and so it's something that we have tried to build into our organization now of how we hire, how we build culture, how we um, kind of find people that are so committed to a mission, how we, how we do partnerships in the model that I'll talk about later. Um, all of that has been shaped, I think, by that White House experience. And then it was the, the end of the administration, uh, 2009, uh, January 2009. So we're getting ready for President Obama's inauguration. And the last several months, President Bush was just so committed to the country and to a, a, a healthy transition to make sure that the incoming administration was ready for all of the threats and all of the crazy chaos that like you see in those roles. And so we had spent months getting these uh, transition books and guides ready and preparing all of our foreign counterparts of, Hey, here's where we are with this group. Here's where uh, here's something to consider as you like start dealing with these folks. And um, so we kind of had prepped all that. And so we're handing it over and it was the Friday before the inauguration was my last day. And that Monday, the week before people were like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. Like I haven't had any time to think about my future. Um, I needed to focus on helping transition the government. Um, and so small, long story short is a friend inside basically said, well, what do you want to do? I told them. And within a day, I got a call from the treasury saying, Hey, we've got these roles. Uh, we've got these positions that are open. Are you interested? And I was like, yes. And I think I had a record short hire. <laughs> so uh, I was able to, to take on a career position over at the treasury and continue for the next seven years in uh, the next, I say the nexus of national security and economics, which is such a fun role. And the treasury does a lot of things that um, most people don't realize, but it is one of the um, most influential agencies in Washington uh, with US government policy from all of the macroeconomic work with the G20 uh, to actually funding the US, the Congress's budget. So when Congress passes a budget and says we want to spend an extra trillion dollars that we don't have, the Treasury's job is to go get that money. Uh, and that's through collections, obviously, through the IRS. And it's also through issuing of Treasury instruments, debt, and that the Treasury manages all of that. The Treasury manages the, uh, the mint and the actual creation of coinage, even if uh, the money supply is controlled by the Fed. I mean, it's there's just a lot of things. It does national security and sanctions. It does. Uh, so you could argue maybe it has too much power, but it was um, when utilized well, it was a really great instrument for uh, keeping the country vibrant, keeping the economy strong. And, um, so you're um, you're there at the Treasury for the next seven years. Are you ba are you based mostly in D.C.? Are you traveling anywhere? Yeah, uh, I, was, I, mean, I, I was based in D.C. for part of it uh, and worked a lot on the Afghanistan portfolio. So I would travel back and forth to there. 
uh, and then took a took the role as the attaché to the Saudi government, and that took me to Riyadh for three years, where we actually lived there, my wife and daughter. Um, wow, you to... lived in Saudi Arabia for three years. Correct. That so, was the last um, role with the treasury. So uh, my good friend, Jesse Escalas, who uh, is based in Phoenix, and I don't know, he has traveled to like 160 countries. Maybe I shouldn't have even mentioned his name because I was asking him about two years ago, which countries do you have left? (laughs) And he said, well, there's probably like 10 or 20 countries I really won't go to right now, even though he goes, I mean, to places that most of us would think are pretty dangerous. Um, But we talked about Saudi Arabia. He hadn't been, and he, he had mentioned this again, this was about two years ago or so. He said, it's really almost, almost impossible for foreigners to actually go into Saudi Arabia, unless you're, you have an official business purpose to be there. And then he mentioned that around that time that they were starting to open up um, some things for sports tourism because they're trying to get, you know, some major maybe soccer matches or World Cup or Olympics or, you know, things like that. They're starting. And so you're going to need to open up your country if you want those things. Right. Um, so I don't know what it's like, what it was like for you, Mike. But I mean, um, is that true? Was it, is it very difficult for anybody outside to get in? And, and what was your experience like there? It, it, was, it used to be harder. It's much easier now. They have made great strides at opening their country, promoting tourism, investing in tourism capacity. So that is changing. I would encourage them to actually look now. Uh, I found it a very vibrant and fascinating country. I've always been drawn to places that don't, you know, there's a homogenous nature now to kind of prosperous, developed countries where you can go to a restaurant in London or Dubai or New York or San Francisco, and you wouldn't even be able to tell the difference of what city you're in. And that to me is, is, is sad because you start to lose the unique uh, cultural identities that are really beautiful and vibrant. So for me, I loved the experience in Saudi because at the time there really was a lot of its authenticity intact. And it hadn't, there weren't that many Americans uh, around. There weren't, you know, there, there really weren't that many outsiders. So, so you're telling I, me there's no McDonald's cashiers there? Well, they, they have, they do have all that still, but it's, uh, you, you know, we would frequent the local shawarma place far more frequently than any uh, American chain <laughs> franchise. Uh, but there was a Starbucks uh, on our, on the compound we lived on and uh that was at the time that was always a nice uh that's really amazing even in a even in a pretty closed country uh starbucks and mcdonald's still find their way that's uh i don't know i don't know business because is everywhere i remember at the time even it's a click to me that american business has far more influence than the american government on diplomacy was just knowing that, you know, Coca-Cola is in far more countries than the U.S. has a diplomatic presence. Um, that that kind of, when I started like, you know, young, early on in my career, I started realizing that I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. Well, Mike, so uh, Saudi Arabia and, and this role as the uh, uh, attache to Saudi Arabia through the Treasury Department, uh, where was your next uh, step there from there? So then um, I, I worked three years there. It was an amazing, fascinating time. And uh, then I had a personal life change. Uh, my, my dad, who was, who's in Atlanta, was sick with uh, a bad cancer, form of cancer. And 
I was flying back and forth it, to be with him in the hospital and felt very much like it was time to move home. And that I didn't make sense from a career standpoint at the time, but it was a clear calling that I felt. And home was a uh, small town, Georgia. It's Atlanta, the Atlanta metro Atlanta, Atlanta, Atlanta. Yeah, North, just a little North small is, town called Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. And I wish it was small. We do live in a, a beautiful, smaller version of Atlanta up in Roswell. So, um, so anyway, so that pushes us on a journey to where we're at today. And uh, I started exploring options, you know, when you're leaving government, when you really have invested your whole career up to a point in it. Uh, and, and I felt gift, I felt gifted. I felt called. I felt like we were, I was doing what I was supposed to do. I understood how to navigate agencies. I understood I had worked in the executive. I'd worked on the Hill. I had enough friends. I had worked with the legal counsel, which worked really closely with the, the courts, obviously, and the judicial process. So I felt like I had a really vibrant understanding of all of Washington and which made it far more, my role far more effective at what I was doing for the treasury uh, because you, you can get things done a lot easier. So it was like, it didn't make sense at the time to leave all that. Um, but what I, it was, it was clear that I needed to do that. So I started looking for work. And obviously, if you hear in this story so far, it's like, what would possibly be more exciting at that point than like representing the treasury to the Saudi government and Riyadh or working in the National Security Council or going around Afghanistan and working with the Hawala systems. And, you know, it's like, so they're really, it was like, wow, I don't know how it's going to be any more interesting. Sure enough, um, through Providence, I meet the founder of Thrive Farmers and hear his story of wanting to solve a a global crisis in the coffee industry that really leaves millions and millions of farmers in the dust uh, and finding a way through the marketplace to rebuild that economic system, how farmers are compensated um, and how customers engage the producers. So, you know, immediately I'm thinking Peru and that whole calling towards kind of like the, the, the poor of the world, if you will. Um, I'm thinking, wow, like I had a lot of ideas for him. And so our one hour intro meeting in 2014, a year before I ended up moving back, uh, turned into a three plus hour meeting and we're whiteboarding and we're drawing out all these plans to like change the world. And, you know, I thought I was just giving him advice and we were just having fun. And, and basically, uh, that led to, uh, an offer. <laughs> he was like, I want you to come join this. And I laughed. I was like, ha ah, ha, that's really funny. Like, you know, I should probably, you know, that has nothing to do with what I've been doing. Like, how do you go from the treasury attache in Riyadh to like selling coffee for a living? And uh, so I kind of laughed it off and, and he was like, no, no, I'm serious. And I started looking in and was like, wait, this is not actually any different than what I've been doing. My whole purpose has been to build flourishing societies. Like I really believe that from, from the think tank at heritage, that whole mission of building a America where freedom, prosperity, and civil society flourish. Uh, 
was what I felt why I joined the Bush administration of, of feeling like, let's bring a lot of these concepts to the world. Why I was working in Saudi and why I loved it was, was helping countries overcome their challenges and working with them as a partner of the United States to, to, to create flourishing. And now here was an opportunity sitting before me to do it in real, at a micro level in a way that maybe could rebuild an entire economic system that would lead to flourishing of lots. So, so I kind of started clicking that this was actually all the same thing, just a different iteration. And so I joined and a year later I had moved to Atlanta and uh, started the last six and a half years of, uh, of the private sector entrepreneur's journey. Though I will flag and let you know, like I never, I never felt like a bureaucrat. I never, I always felt like an entrepreneur in every role in government. And I, I would frustrate people so much of like, you know, we got to do it differently. We need to like, let's, let's, I know this is how it's always done, but like, here's how I want to do it this time. You know, like, I think that's important that, uh, you know, you can, no matter what position you're in, you can bring an entrepreneurial mindset or attitude towards those roles. So you can be working within government or within another organization or business and and do that, even if it's not, you know, being a founder or or starting a company yourself. So that's important. And it sounds like, you know, from your experience, you've, you've done that in a lot of your roles. And then that also helps form you when you do want to go out and uh, do something uh, more entrepreneurial. I want to back up a little bit just to, to put this in context before we get totally into Thrive Farmers and Thrive Works, because um, you know I've spent uh, most of 2021 in Guatemala. Uh, you've spent a lot of time in Central and South America, uh, especially in the last six and a half years with, uh, with your role. Um, obviously, uh, coffee is a really big deal in some of those areas, uh, including Guatemala, where I've been. And there's, I think, thousands probably of coffee farms and coffee brands. And um, and yet uh, there's, you know, some of them are, I'm sure, are doing well. And, and many others, you know, are probably struggling, you know. And yet, you know, we take for granted almost you know, most people wake up every morning and at some point in their morning have a cup of coffee, maybe two, maybe some throughout the day. You, We just mentioned Starbucks being all around the world. It's everywhere, right? Coffee is everywhere. Um, it's part of our culture. It's part of our daily life. By the way, speaking of coffee, um, I, I one of the books I was using in my class at Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala is uh, How Innovation Works by Matt Ridley. And hmm. one of the, uh, one of the, themes of innovation is that there's always resistance to innovation. And I love in the book that Matt Ridley actually uses this example back around the 1500s. Uh, one of the big resistances uh, when, there, when, when coffee came into Europe, right? Coffee was something that was grown in Africa and later in the Americas. And now it's coming into Europe and even into the Middle East. And the elites are like trying to put a stop to coffee. A uh, couple reasons. Uh, well, the beer and the wine industries were threatened, right? So they had, they had put up their their lobbying interest, if you will, you know, in in, in those days, uh, uh, to basically put out studies that said how horrible coffee was for you, how unhealthy it was, especially compared to beer and wine. I need to read uh, this section. Yeah, yeah, awesome. uh, yeah. It's a good little section. And then uh, the other, but the real, the real reason the elites were against coffee was w- when you have coffee, you have cafes. And when you have cafes, 
people congregate with each other and they talk and they talk about their leaders and they talk about what's going on in society. And the leaders don't really like that, right? So they, they want to put a stop to the cafes and you got to put a talk, stop to the source of coffee. But I looked at my students at Francisco Marroquin, which who are all from Guatemala, right? It's based right there in Guatemala City. And I said, can you imagine a world without coffee? I mean, that's how much resistance people might have to innovation. But, but really, it's hard to imagine a world without coffee, whether you're from Guatemala, where it's grown and enjoyed as well. Uh, or or all over the world, especially United States, where we have coffee. So we take for granted how this coffee gets to us. And in recent years, Mike, I also want to just throw this at you. In recent years, some people have said, hey, we've got to help the coffee farmers. And so there was this fair trade movement, I guess you could say. Uh, and, and that has basically you know, I think been pitched as a way to help get more money to the coffee farmers. So I'm going to just throw all of that at you. We're coming into this world of coffee and what you guys are doing at Thrive Farmers and Thrive Works. Tell us a little bit about the coffee economy and and the co- and the role of the coffee farmer. And maybe if you want to dive into fair trade, you can get into that too. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot here. So let's, let's just start unpacking. Um, but I think I'll start with your your comment on kind of the elites being against coffee at the beginning because it enabled uh, a threat. It, it, it predicated a threat to their world order. And I, I see those same, the resistance to innovation is kind of the same thing. Again, if humans don't really change, then the systems that humans set up for uh, their own kind of for our own selfish interest have to are not going to change either. And so we're going to see them manifest in different ways. And that's where, to me, uh, you need systems that account for that human nature really well, which is actually why the foundations of democratic liberty and freedom and uh, rule of law and all these things are actually some of the best antidotes because you can, (laughs) you, you create systems that account for the reality of humankind. And I think those are really, really important not to lose sight of. And that's why I love UFM and, and universities like that. Um, but in coffee, I think we, we kind of have, you, you have your growers and your producers and because of coffee has to be grown in a very particular environment. Uh, so it's grown within the tropics. It needs a certain elevation it needs a certain rain pattern and it needs certain temperature bands um, and certain soil types. <laughs> and so when you've kind of like crunch all those numbers uh, and all those factors, it, it, it grows in this belt, this coffee belt around the world that traditionally has been in the bottom kind of third of, of prosperous nations. So you, it tends to come out of uh, countries in, in the, the least developed countries. And uh, now part of that was exactly how, you know, the Europeans in the original market started settling that and taking plants from Africa and, you know, Ethiopia's the the original birthplace, but then Yemen actually is credited with really kind of making the industry. A lot of uh, early trade was happening from Yemen. Um, But anyway, it spreads all into the kind of colonial areas and they start growing it there. So it was, it was an industry that was built on, let's just say, either free or very, very cheap labor. And it has evolved 
to kind of remain the same in that sense. So you're, you kind of have a wealthy consumer market that is needing a raw product out of um, an area with, and so obviously like the cheaper the labor, the better the margins are for the, you know, the traders and those kind of selling it and the cheaper the, for the consumer and all that. So that's kind of how the system's been built. So the positive side was, you know, humans also have a lot of good in us and we're not all inherently selfish at hundred percent of the time. And, and there's some real altruism uh, that I think exists. And so fair trade was one of those movements. I kind of likened in more in the nineties was really when it was going. Uh, and it was designed to try to address a discrepancy in the system. Why is it that wealthy consumers can buy this product and the farmers are still living in abject poverty who grow it. Uh, and so they had organized kind of a, an opportunity to democratize the growing communities and kind of create collectives and co-ops uh, and profit shares at the farming level. And so I think a lot of the intentions of fair trade are, are quite good and honestly, very in line with, with the team at Thrive and what we feel called to do. The difference is, is in the execution and in the evolution of the system. And so fair trade today, uh, and you can read a lot of academic literature on this, uh, it has not really shown a significant difference for the economic disbursements to farmers um, versus non-fair trade. And in fact, uh, it's set up where it, the comp like the brand of fair trade is largely a marketing brand. It's something that consumers recognize so they can come, fair trade can charge a premium to a uh, label, a coffee roaster who will use the fair trade label because the consumers recognize it. Um, and it also fair trade charges the co-ops, the growers themselves, a fee to be included in the system. And then they have to do certain things. So they have to invest and do things sometimes that are not necessarily in their interest. And often things that may not even help the farmer in the end produce what they, a better crop, right? So you kind of, for a while, the system has not been working well. Um, and the, the biggest problem with fair trade is it does not guarantee a farmer can sell at a higher price. So the promise is, in theory, you join the system, you pay us a little bit of money, and then you sell your coffee for a lot more. And so obviously, it's a great investment. Well, it doesn't really work like that. And so if a farmer produces 100 pounds of coffee, and only 20% of it can go to a fair trade buyer, because the farmer still has to find the buyer who's buying the fair trade, then you, know, you get 20% at the fair trade premium, and then 80% at the market, and it still kind of net zero. So that's, that's, there's a lot of other things you can say, but Thrive was essentially set up to build an entirely different direct system and to remove as many of the costs in the center between the farmer and the consumer, um, streamline those costs, remove anything that's superfluous like extra marketing fees for certifications that are not actually helpful um, extra traders who are merely just buying and selling and just, just kind of trading, but really trying to connect consumers with the farmer directly. 
and then profit sharing what we earn at a higher point in the value chain than what the farmer is selling at a raw good. Kind of give them equity from their raw good as it rises through the value chain to a, a finished good. So for those of you who don't know, the 30 second summary is coffee starts as a cherry. It's literally like a fruit. Uh, it looks like a cranberry. And inside that juicy cranberry uh, you are, are two coffee seeds. And there's, there's a lot of steps in that process to take what's grown on a farm and turn it into what's in your cup. It's got to be wet milled. It's got to be rested. It's got to be dry milled, sorted, packaged to, in raw form to ship and export. It's got to be imported. It's got to be climate controlled, stored. It's got to go to a roaster. A roaster's got to build a perfect profile for it on how you cook it and roast it, uh, you know, too much in it tastes like uh, companies that you'll know out there that are very burnt, uh, too little, and it, it's very acidic and will make your stomach hurt. So there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and so yeah, it's Mike, a- you know, it's, it's funny you say that because uh, two and a half years ago, my first visit to Guatemala, I, I uh, had actually visited a pretty large farm uh, right outside Antigua, the Azatea farm and uh, coffee farm. And I remember somewhere in the middle of I got to give a shout out to my friend Kyle, who uh, uh, who uh, is based in uh, Colorado, but actually he's at the University of Chicago now for for grad school. But he said he he's the one I visited there. He was living in Guatemala for nine months. He took me on this coffee bar and somewhere about halfway through the tour, a little light bulb went off my head. I was like, huh, why haven't I ever visited a coffee farm before? And then kind of what you said, because if I'm from the United States and if I don't go to Central America or somewhere in Africa or Asia right on that, you know, coffee line in the tropics, not far from the equator, you know, coffee isn't, you know, there was literally a map on the wall. Coffee isn't grown anywhere else in the world. Right. So that's super interesting. Uh, recently, uh, I became friends with a family in, uh, Palencia, Guatemala. Uh, my friend Saul, uh, there who his family runs the San Patricio coffee finca in uh, Palencia. It's huge. Couldn't believe how big this was, but had another chance to, to, get the tour. Um, and then uh, we took the Fearless Journey's first group trip there in November. So all those little aspects you just described, I'm just visualizing actually Saul picking up that cranberry-like looking thing, giving it to each of us, letting us bite at it to s- kind of taste it and see how it feels. So you get the whole and you get to kind of crack it open and see what it's like, but then walks us through the process of when it you know turns colors and uh, where it goes after that. And all those things you just mentioned, and this morning, actually, I was I, I brought some of their coffee back, by the way, from Guatemala here to Florida, and I'm opening the bag and I'm sifting the coffee out to put it in the coffee maker. And I was thinking how much more appreciation I have for these little grains of coffee, yeah. uh, thinking about all those steps, how much they grew, the rain, the water storage they were doing. I mean, all those aspects. And then what you're saying, you know, I mean, you could go to a, a nice coffee uh, uh, shop and, and, you know, get it roasted really well, you know? So it's, it's, it's amazing all of that process to get into my hands for really very little money. When you think about it at the end of the day, how, how far that travels. Um, and, uh, but so, so for very little money as I'm going to get to right there, because, because what, what percentage of that actually goes back to the coffee farmers and where does thrive come in? And you just mentioned getting a lot of the um, uh, maybe some some of the 
things in the way, some of the expenses that, that are in the way, a lot of the the hoops that a lot of these coffee farmers have to go to get those to market, to get those to buyers, get those to consumers ultimately. So, so where does Thrive come in? Uh, Thrive Farmers and and uh, and Thrive Works uh, come into that situation, and, and and let's let's move forward from there. Okay, so yeah, it's you nailed it, um, and I th- what farmers end up needing is an advocate, is is a is a partner in the system that says, hey, let's take this product to market together and let's share in the rewards together. That's what Thrive essentially has done. Um, The early farmers in the system gave us coffee on consignment that we brought to the market and then paid them once we got paid. If it's not a sustainable system, it cannot work, but but it at least bought into the concept that we'll pay you a lot more if you do it this way than if you just uh, sell to a trader and then you'll never see any upside. So what we come up with now is essentially, uh, a way. So on a macro scale, uh, there was like a 2018 academic study that basically said coffee producing countries are capturing 10% of the overall value of the global value chain of coffee, 10%. So that, that makes, that's exactly about what we have seen. So, that, that would include caf- the cafe value of coffee too. So like going to a cafe in Rome or something. And then obviously real estate, you get into a lot of other value adds that are really expensive that you can't take out and like give it to the farmer. It's, it's not a one-to-one, but all that to say that it's still a really tiny percentage of what the value chain is. For us, we have delivered, again, we've kind of like crunched a bunch of numbers and this is how... Uh, on our, as a B Corp and B Labs, the word that you had mentioned in the bio was it's a really big deal for us because it basically they audit our entire impact system, and the average farmer is earning about three hundred percent, three times higher net income. So when the farmer takes off the cost it takes to produce the coffee, and then what we're paying, the premiums we're paying, and the profit share that we give them at the end of the year, so we do a, a dual payment system. Um, it ends up, it can be three times higher than they were making before. Not every farmer is, it, you know, that is an average across all of our volume, but it's, it's, it's pretty significant. When I looked at, uh, you know, as we start to think about like flourishing and then how do you use a system like this to generate real market-based changes in countries that need it? You know, you need investment in countries. You need economics uh, st- stimulation, but it, for me, what I saw on the government side was you can you can only stimulate so much behavior from the government down. It's far more effective if the grassroots up actually builds things of value and then can capture value. And so, having a marketplace that's actually rewarding wealth, taking money from a wealthy economy, and fairly paying farmers in the poor economy creates this huge multiplier effect of what that that economic stimulation can do that then farmers can build on it and communities can build on it. And it actually becomes the foundation for a healthy development strategy there. So we launched Thrive Works as the, the thesis being, if you can get the economics moving and expand economic opportunity on a for-profit basis, what if immediately behind that, 
you can have a group that is focused on how do you now mobilize that those economics and, and mobilize community leaders around a development agenda that they create and you empower them and equip them to do that with all of these different tools. So we fused multiple disciplines here. We, we really nailed changing the coffee, the structure of the coffee industry. And one clients like Chick-fil-A and some other large ones that we'll announce soon. So we, we really said, hey, we need some economic, we need big buyers to understand and buy into a truly fair supply chain, a transparent supply chain, one that really addresses the root of these issues. I tell people who, you know, you can come up with all the current cultural issues that you care about. So uh, a lot of folks are talking about the environment and, and climate change and climate justice and all of that. I say, great. What's the root cause of the demise of the environment that you're focused on? So in Central America, you see a ton of deforestation. It is really, it is, in the long term, it's unsustainable. It's terrible for those countries. It's terrible for the local climate. It's terrible for the soil. It's terrible, right? Great. How, how are you going to address that? You have a couple options. You can regulate. You can try to have largely ineffective governments try to put rules in place on how you use the land and when you can cut the trees or not, but you can't actually enforce it. It's really expensive and it doesn't address any of the why. Or you can try to understand the why. Well, when you have no income, when you have no clean water, when you have to cut trees to burn firewood to boil water so you're not sick, uh, and, and others, like, it's very really easy to see why the trees are being cut down. So for us, we say, let's address the economic roots of a lot of these other challenges first, and then we'll layer in all this other development. And I would argue we will in the long term be far more effective at addressing challenges that we weren't even setting out to address. Right. And, uh, and Mike, you could, you could probably add to the environment, you know, uh, one thing that most people think about when they think of Guatemala or anywhere in Central America, they think about all the immigrants, all the people trying to leave there, come to the borders, right? We have this border crisis now. Um, yep. And so uh, that's also addressing, right, the economic roots uh, of the situation as well, right? That is a 98% economic crisis. Um, and if you don't create economies that are meaningful, an economic opportunity that's meaningful and dignified, uh, you will see continued people migration of people leaving. And this was fascinating for me because I've studied, you know, having lived in a lot of countries and looked at roots of conflict. So this is where the war college meets the work I was doing with the treasury in Afghanistan to Saudi to poverty. When we looked at why do people join terrorist organizations? When you look at why do people join the drug trade or trafficking rings? When you look at why do uh, countries go to war a lot of times? Um, when you look at why do people do mass migration? Why do people leave in mass from place? Most of what I have, at least this is my view, most of what I have observed is it is an economic disparity at its root. Either people don't have, you know, we, we notice in, in the Middle East, 
a lot of people joined ISIS because they were, you know, for this demographic, it was single, male, unemployed, in their young 20s that were looking for a way to provide, like means to live and dignity and respect. So, okay, we can, you can join this organized group that will pay you and give you a mission in life that is far more meaningful than sitting around and like wasting away. So the same concept, the same thing why people strive in the United States to go to great university and to get a great job. We're all looking for the same thing. We want to provide, we want dignity and in, in something purposeful in our life. So anyway, the same thing is happening in the, in Guatemala. I was there uh, on the border with, you know, Mexico, Guatemalan border uh, last week. Um, and that was my last trip there. And they're projecting from that area, another million people are about to leave in the next 12 to 14 months from that one area. That's, that's, that's a massive amount of human suffering that could be avoided if there was a reason to stay. And so a lot of Thrive Works is, is work behind the scenes. Again, I mean, our, we're not there specifically to address immigration. We're there to promote flourishing, which at its core will address migration. Uh, and so we're focused on the, the young generation, we, we were working with a group on three dimensions. We had uh, young people that were becoming baristas and training in the culinary side to become chefs so that, okay, they could grow coffee. But a lot of the young folks are like, I don't, I don't just want to be farmers my whole life. Like, like, I mean, you could tell kids in the United States, like, Hey, you can, you know, be in poverty or you can go be a farmer and kind of be in poverty or, or like go to study at the university and become a you know computer scientist and engineer or whatever. Um, a lot of them want to go do the last thing or they want to go become a photographer. Like, so we can't expect like the whole world, the young folks to to want to stay agrarian their whole life. Doesn't mean that's good or bad. It just is. So we're trying to create alternative tracks for them who are like, hey, I want it. I want it both, or or I want something different. Uh, the so other Mike, thing can is, you can you explain um uh just I know you have two sides of this enterprise. So when you first got involved, you were hired by Thrive Farmers, correct? And my understanding is that's basically a coffee and tea company. Maybe you can uh, just give a quick overview of that. And then uh, I guess while you were there, you helped create this nonprofit. So Thrive Farmers is for profit company. Thrive Works is a nonprofit. Yep. Uh, and now you're the founder and CEO of the nonprofit Thrive Works. Can you can you tell us about the relationship there? Um, I think I get it, but maybe for, to help our no, audience fair. a little it's, bit more. It's, yeah, it's not traditional. It is not like most corporate foundations, where most corporate foundations are set up that you have your company making money, and then the social impact is designed. You you donate some of the money to your corporate foundation, and that's charity, and then that charity donates that money releases the funds to other charities that are doing work and causes aligned with the company's stated desires. We have said, this is the mission is to build a thriving world. And to do that, we've got to address the economic disparities of farmers. To do that well, we've got to make amazing products that customers want and we've got to sell. Um, and then 
we're going to empower local leaders on their community development cycle. It's a one-two punch. You really, I think we would stop short of achieving the mission of a thriving world if we just did one or and the other. On the, uh, on the for-profit side, Thrive Farmers, uh, a couple questions I'm going to have for you here so you can answer them all uh, sure. in, in whatever form you want. Uh, first, how do, you, um, how do you create relationships with farmers where are those farmers? My understanding is you could tell us where that. I know Guatemala, Costa Rica, I think some other places. Um, and then uh, you also, I know, create relationships with buyers. So you mentioned one of your huge buyers, Chick-fil-A. Um, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about that relationship and, and, and what, how they're uh, bringing coffee from Thrive Farmers to, um, to Chick-fil-A customers. And, um, and yeah, I think those are some of the things that would be kind of uh, noteworthy here to talk about. Great. So this, the, the company, the simple form is we produce farmer direct goods that uh, we source. So it's mostly right now it's coffees, it's teas, and we just launched our ready to drink canned uh, cold brews. So we have an oat milk latte, a, um, mocha oat milk, vanilla oat milk. So these are great things. And then uh, we just launched yesterday. Literally, they just showed up at the door. These We've been in design for a long time of sparkling teas. So these are uh, all fresh ingredients from farms around the world with 20 calories or less with no additives of kind of like your seltzer water flavored seltzer water trend, but way healthier and way tastier because it's a hundred percent natural. And where so, are those products, the coffees and teas that you're describing, where are they, where they, where can we buy them? So you can buy them on our website right now. The, the, these new ones aren't out there yet, but um, you can buy them on the website or we work with big Is customers. Is that what like thrivefarmers.com? Thrivefarmers.com. Yep. Go yeah. check it out. We're all the new stuff should be coming up in January. So maybe by the time you're listening, we'll, we'll have it up. Um, and then we have partnerships and distribution centers uh, with different companies. We've mostly been B2B. So we mostly focused on, you know, we, we designed a proprietary blend in partnership with Chick-fil-A that is direct source from three different countries for their coffee and their cold brew. Uh, we work with a bunch of other large restaurants or hospitality industry uh, for white label products that they're doing. We design recipes with them. So we, the only way to solve the big problem that we're trying to address in the world is the scale and the scale, you need big customers and you need, you need companies that are willing to buy into a transparent supply chain. And that's an increasing trend that is happening that we're really doing well in. Now we're starting to move to direct to consumer. So that's why you really, a lot of consumers don't know our brand, uh, you know, but we we've created the teas and the coffee, the new coffees, like the, the individual bags and stuff that will sell on our website and through e-commerce and possibly we're, we're talking to some grocery and stuff. You'll probably in the next 14, you know, 12 to 24 months see. So I, th I find the Chick-fil-A story pretty interesting too, not because it's, you know, one of my favorite brands to, to eat. I actually, to be honest with you, I don't really think about going to Chick-fil-A for coffee, but I understand that they won some awards for the best. What is it? The best coffee at a fast Thrillist, food? Yeah. Rated, you know, they rate uh, all the best, the best tasting coffees in quick service. And 
and quick service. So continues um, it's, to it, win. It's excellent. is it what a blend of uh, coffee from Guatemala, Costa Rica, and Brazil? Is that right? Correct. And it's yeah. it is true specialty grade. So in the industry, there is like like in the wine industry, there is a standard and grading process. And these kind of sommeliers, these Q graders of coffee uh, that exist. And so Chick-fil-A's coffee is one of the, it, I think it's the only quick service company serving true specialty grade, which means the input that you're getting is the highest quality on the whole market. So you really should be able to taste a difference uh, when you when you drink their coffee. Okay, so time to go to Chick Fil A for breakfast now too. Okay, so uh, but also I understand that at some point they were actually also educating their customers about some of the coffee farmers, like on their products and cups. I don't remember seeing that, but yeah, the first three years of uh, the partnership with us, they uh, I wish I had the cups with me here, but they they you know would tell they drew a caricature like a little sketch, kind of like the Wall Street Journal type sketches of people on the yeah. cup with uh, a story of the farmer. And I thought it was really, there were several things that was really powerful about that because it gave a real recognition to these farmers and these communities that farming is cool. Farming is dignified. Farming coffee is something that's that people respect. And so it actually brought like the kids of a lot of these farmers that made the, the cup who were like, I'm never going to do what my parents do. Like, I don't want to do all that hard work. It made them actually say like, I want to inherit the family farm and I want to do this because this is cool. My dad just went to New York city and he was, you know, we had a picture of one of these farmers from rural Guatemala standing in times square with the picture of him and the coffee cup on the marquee at, in times square. And he's like standing there and you're like that. I mean, like, that's cool. That is really cool. So I hands off to Chick-fil-A for I'm sure it was awesome for his family and his community as well to probably see those pictures later on as well. Um, Well, Mike, uh, also, I understand that you have a uh, Thrive Farmers has a or is it maybe it's I don't know how it's branded, but you have a coffee shop in Atlanta as well. Yeah, the cold Uh, brew bar on the Beltline in Atlanta. It's It's called called the cold brew bar. It's called the cold brew bar. And there's a bunch of the, all these cool sparkling teas and everything uh, that I mentioned, they're all on tap at the cold brew bar as well uh, as coffee, then, as well as coffee. And it's really, it's a great design. It's, it's one, we won a, a muse design award. It's like an architectural design group uh, magazine that for one of the best coffee shop designs. So again, I mean, the essence is like my advice to everybody is whatever you're doing, have a good reason of why you're doing it. And I really, really think how can you make society better in a slight, in any way, in some, some way, just let's make society better. And then whatever we decide to do, let's really try to do it with excellence. I mean, that's, that's like the bottom line in all this. So our coffee shop is winning awards because it is beautiful. It's, 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 it's honoring to the farmer. We post, we literally publish the prices of the coffees that you're ordering that we paid the farmer. So here's this, what's on tap today. Here's what you can order. Here's the price that we paid the farmer. And here's the 
side-by-side -side, um, market, the C market price of coffee on that day. So it's just like a subtle way to educate consumers even on, on the economic underpinnings of the, the model. You know, that's, that's really interesting because when we talked earlier about fair trade, um, you know, I brought this example up to uh, some folks in Guatemala that, you know, we were having these conversations as well. And I said, well, you know, so fair trade had at least some really good intentions. We might be able to debate about whether the outcomes today uh, have been great for the farmers or not. But as a consumer, right? I mean, I don't have time to be researching things, right? Like I'm yeah. going to the grocery store and I'm going to all sorts of places and I'm, I've got to look out for maybe my own pocketbook, my family's pocketbook. I, I've got you know, lots of side-by-side -side comparisons. It's the great thing about the free market. I could just go to the store shelves and buy whatever I want. And maybe I've been slightly educated, maybe even myself, and, and maybe I hear, oh, fair trade, fair trade coffee. That's supposed to be better for the farmers, right? Whatever. Maybe I want to do something good in my, in my um, purchases. And so I see fair trade and I go for that one over the other ones. But basically what I've been told, maybe a little bit by you today, Maybe by others, it's not really that much difference, right? I mean, maybe uh, maybe the intentions were great. Maybe it's maybe it's throwing a couple more pennies to a farmer. I don't know, but um, but what I like about what you're doing there on your board, I've seen an image of it, um, is you're telling people exactly what's going back to the farmer based on what they just bought, right? So they're seeing that uh, comparison there, and it seems like you're giving. Uh, it, I, tell me, Mike, in in what I read in your bio earlier, three hundred percent more. Or going to farmers through ThriveWorks is that how, how how would you characterize that? That's all Thrive Farmers. So it's Thrive the, Farmers. I'm sorry. The, the, yeah. yeah, the simple the pricing system is we we buy we you know lock in a contract at the beginning of the year uh, and pay a, a really strong price that will always be above the C market in the fair trade price, and then we pr we run it through the whole system for the year and sell it, and we have a pool of profits from all of the sales of the, you know, wherever point in the value chain, we sold the product uh, and we pool that together. And then we do a profit share back with the farmers. So that becomes their second payment. And it ends up by when you combine those two payments is what we were saying kind of on average, it can be up to three times. Again, it's not every farmer, the big sophisticated farmers that already have uh, markets and, and direct buyers we're going to be probably close to on par, but our biggest thing that they even tell us what they love about working with us is one, I mean, it is a family. We're very, very, very committed to those farmers and the long-term relationships. But two, what I haven't mentioned is, is we remove all volatility of pricing. And so if you actually study the commodity price of coffee, you see massive variance year over year, which makes it really hard to plan for your investments in a farm, particularly on something you can sell. You only get one source of income per year from that crop. So you get one crop of coffee, takes a whole year to grow it. And if the if it could be up 20%, down 50, up five, down you know 90%. And I mean, you just don't know. It becomes really hard to build a business around that, particularly if you're a smallholder grower. So what Thrive has really done more than the, the higher prices is that we've stabilized the price because what our customers are paying to us is high. And we kind of say the marketplace is high and stable. The raw good side is low and volatile. And so all we've really done is, is brought that stability into the farmer. I mean, it's that simple. 
So Mike, you mentioned a phrase a little bit earlier, uh, starting with why. Um, and obviously that's a great book and a great TED talk by Simon Sinek. Uh, we actually had that book featured in the Fearless Journeys book club a few months ago. So I got a lot of people thinking about that that might be listening to, to this. Uh, but it sounds to me like you, I mean, when I listen to you, um, the founders of Thrive Farmers, and then now as well, what you're doing with Thrive Works, uh, it sounds like your why is very apparent. I mean, you're you're definitely you're bringing great coffee, great quality coffee to the market. So because you need a good product, right? You need people aren't just going to buy stuff. They need they want something quality to buy. But you're also doing it with a purpose to help change uh, the economies what's going on in the coffee regions, particularly in Central and South America, and maybe some other places. And um, and and you're starting to you know see the that purpose. I mean that when Chick Fil A puts the coffee farmers picture on there. And, and when you're telling people at your coffee shop of the cold, the cold brew bar in Atlanta, uh, you know, what is going to, you know, you're definitely, I think you're reminding people uh, to have a little gratitude towards where this came from and who it's going to support. And then I think also some of the things you mentioned, uh, the migration that's coming out of uh, the mass migration that's coming out of Central America uh, to the U.S., even to Mexico, and through Mexico to the U.S., um, and and also you know the environmental impact that it's having. That's that's a huge thing, right? That's long term sustainability for people's uh, living conditions. Uh, so I think I mean the why is very apparent to me in in Thrive Farmers and Thrive Works, and it's it's such an interesting dynamic. And then and then you and you you create this nonprofit that comes in behind the. By the way, I was also listening to you just now thinking about. Gosh, even without the nonprofit, the for-profit company it's is a, doing something huge, uh, incredible. Yeah. Yes, and and we and I always try to emphasize that when we're selling Thrive, we we sell Thrive. Thrive works to me is is truly this like added on engine on the like that is so beyond what most people could understand and, and even appreciate that it's it's okay to leave out, but it's like thrive, just changing the economics of the equation of coffee growers and what we think could apply to all agriculture in the future. That's, that's massive. That's, that's massive in and of itself. Um, but I am passionate. I don't, I mean, like you, like you heard earlier, like I don't ever want us to stop when we know we can do more. Like, why would we stop if we could do more? So Thrive yeah. Works is really this, it's, it's a dedicated vehicle funded mostly outside the company. That's the other big thing because we didn't get into it. It's like, we actually have brought in other outside donors. So any of you listeners who want to get involved in something highly innovative, that's kind of shattering the, the way international development works, that's kind of changing the paradigm of how most charities run. Uh, consider coming in and donating at thriveworks.org uh, because we we really have tried to build something seated on the company, but actually going so far beyond that we want it to be collective. We want anybody and everybody to who cares about the, taking the baton past what Thrive can do with a farmer uh, into the broad scale flourishing. That's Thrive Works is the place to do that. And this came out of an idea really of how like the National Security Council in the White House was structured. You have a hub and spoke model where you've got a kind of, in theory, if it's working properly, which it doesn't often, but you have a strategy coordinator that can take 
all of the different disciplines of ideas that are going to be needed for flourishing. So you think about it at a basic level, just imagine you need economic engines and opportunity is the baseline to me. That's the marketplace. That's not government. That's not government's role. That's the marketplace's role. So you bring that in and then you need, well, you need, you know, water people who really understand in, in a lot of these communities, water. Okay, great. You need health. You need education. You need leadership. You need people who you can invest and mentor in creating a generation of people who want to serve and go beyond themselves, kind of, kind of be willing to die to some of those selfish tendencies we talked about earlier. When you have all of that, that's what lives and thrive works. Then you can harness government to do what it can do on the back end. It's actually the back end and it's the policy arena, the kind of high level conditions that create flourishing. That's the government's role. The government's role is also security. So if there's massive security threats, like there's a role for force, and like you need a, a non-corrupt healthy use of that. And to the degree that that exists, flourishing can happen. But then everything else is private and civil society. So the marketplace has its role and philanthropy and charity has its role. ThriveWorks is the epicenter of those three worlds. And we're kind of coordinating it all so that it turns into something beautiful instead of it just being um, completely random. Though I, obviously I believe in the power of the random, uh, like uh, the marketplace, the Hayekian kind of view of certain things. I do think there is... Uh, order that comes out of chaos a lot of times on its own. So we, we're trying to like walk a fine line between status quo chaos that's not good and catalyzing healthy local responses to solutions to that chaos that is good. And so there's always a fine yeah, tension there, but I think we walk it pretty well. Yeah. And so if people want, you know, the coffee and want to uh, maybe buy the products and see what's going on with the company, thrivefarmers.com. And then if people want to support the charity or see what's or getting involved in, in some way, it's Thrive Works with an X, not a Thrive yes. Works. Thriveworks.org. Dot org. Dot org. Thriveworks.org. Yeah. Just sign up. If you're in Thriveworks.org is also like the think tank. So sign up for the newsletter there. And you'll at least just get a monthly update of some of these happenings, this, the thought. Uh, we published an amazing piece on the roots of migration um, uh, from Guatemala last two months ago that is a narrative form, not a policy thing. It's truly a narrative from the eyes of the a few families who stayed. So it's called uh, Los Que Quedan, like those who stay. Uh, wow. It's the, their view of what's happening around of their neighbors leaving and dying in the way. I mean, this is really, it's, it's really heartfelt, but that's a fun piece. So things like that are all in our newsletter. Well, uh, Mike, back on uh, episode 73 of the Agents of Innovation podcast, I had Sam Staley, who's a professor at Florida State University, and he teaches classes on social entrepreneurship. And for those that want to get into social entrepreneurship, go back and listen to that episode. But literally, Mike Menina is living social entrepreneurship, even just through Thrive Farmers, as I mentioned, what they're doing as their, their private enterprise, um, but also they're adding to it with a nonprofit, Thrive Works. So that's great. Mike, Just a, we've, you've, you, we've had a lot of your time and I really appreciate it. Um, we could probably keep talking to you for hours because this is so fascinating. No, this is fascinating. I get really um, into this stuff too. So 
Yeah, but I do want to. Ha- I have a, a couple last uh, questions for you um, because. Uh, so the first one is: How has your personal faith impacted um, your life and career and your view of the role of business? <laughs> it really is everything. Uh, for me, I was a lost teenager trying to understand the world. And I felt like I had a radical encounter with Jesus. uh, And it opened my eyes to that. I, I believe we were created by a loving and good God in this perfect order. And I believe that we did mess it up. And yet there's this pathway back. So for me, that experience has shaped, it shaped my Peru experience and dealing face to face with poverty. It put that call as to why I felt like, and again, it's not perfect. I'm not perfect at this. I still struggle with wanting my own comfort and wanting to, you know, my own material wealth, but it's like this real healthy tension of what, if we only have one life, like, how are we going to live it? I really do want to honor God in how I live. And so that is the kind of underpinning motivation of all of Thrive uh, and Thrive Works. It's, it's kind of our why. Because um, why would we? we? We literally opt. We choose to leave profits on the table that a normal company would take ourselves. And we, we give them to f- farmers. It's not because we hundred percent, we owe it. it. It is, you can argue it is above the market rate. It's like beyond the efficient market, but I believe it is, it is the right thing to do. Why do we do that? Because we think there's a higher purpose. And so anyway, so it, it does, it motivates and it shapes kind of everything on the why side. But that said, what I love about what we do, we are so, we are inclusive to anyone and everyone. We will work with customers. We will work with farmers. You don't have to subscribe to the same belief system. Um, We believe you are designed to flourish. And our job is to help be on your journey to to flourishing. And so uh, I love that about us. It's a very inclusive um, vision. It's a very inclusive way we approach our life and uh, our staff and our farmers. So. Well, I think that's uh, really great. And it was, it was great to hear that because that's that's the why behind your why, right? And so uh, I think that's that's important. Uh, last probably question for you here, Mike. Uh, and that is, what is some of the advice that you might give to other aspiring entrepreneurs? What can they be thinking about doing today uh, to maybe continue to help themselves, you know, maybe be uh, just have a stronger entrepreneurial mindset um, whether they're a founder in a company or not, or, or maybe preparing themselves to do that one day, what can they be doing today? Yeah, I, I think I share this with others before, but it's um, creating, I think so much of life is like really spending time to reflect on your why. <laughs> I really believe that until you start to be comfortable, it doesn't mean everything has to be aligned, but until you understand that, why are you here? Why were you created? Um, until you wrestle with those big questions, I think there's a lot of aimlessness. Augustine kind of says our hearts are, uh, are well, basically he, I'm missing the quote, but 
we will never be satisfied until our hearts rest in God. That's what Augustine said. And I have actually seen that to play out in every culture across the world all the time. When I see people whose hearts are restless, uh, it's often because they haven't understood their full purpose. And so if you're on this journey, like maybe your journey, you, it's a, it's a life of discovery for sure, but focus on reflecting and try to understand your own why, uh, consult timeless literature. As I tell you, don't just read the news. Don't read modern authors, read literature that has withstood the test of time. Um, so simple things like Marcus Aurelius, um, his journals, his reflections, I find they're like proverbial, uh, really, really great wisdom in there. Uh, read Plato's Republic to understand the basis of, of, of flourishing societies. Uh, read uh, Man's Search for Meeting by Viktor Frankl and understand when you survive a Holocaust, you know, what was the difference of those who gave up on life in the worst of circumstances and the few who survived in, in, in understanding that purpose of meaning, um, read, read the Holy scriptures, read, uh, Boethius, read Augustine. I mean, I don't know. There's a million, right. So read timeless literature, um, and build deep friendships. That's what I tell people too. I, uh, it's easy as an entrepreneur and I'm guilty of this to just be, we're so enamored with our problem that we're trying to solve that we like forget about people. And I, you know, even this week I was like reflecting on that. Wow. I need it. My team it's Christmas. It's like, I haven't even like <laughs> done it. We didn't do a big Christmas gift or anything. I was like, shoot. So, so I got too focused on solving the problem, but invest in these deep friendships and particularly ones that will last you a lifetime because they'll be the few voices that sit and tell you, you are off your rocker. You know, you are, your arrogance is just dripping off of you. Like stop. And, and you'll need that. Uh, and I think too, too few of people have built real friendships that will be honest and tell you. And the final thing I'd say is make time, uh, journal is just a great habit. Just get in the habit of putting your thoughts and where you are and what you're frustrated with or what you're sad about, just put them in writing. And over time, you'll have this library of the journey you've been on. And it will really help you unpack those lessons later. Like I haven't read my Peru journals till recently. And it was coming, like, I don't think I realized how profound an experience 20 years ago was on my life until 20 years later, reflecting back and seeing, wow, that was really profound. I'm so glad I had written every day that summer in that journey I was on. Uh, and that's been able to help guide a lot of things now. So that's, that's some advice when you're building a business, obviously, uh, tenacity, don't give up. If you're convinced you're right on something, really test that, be open to new ideas and input and, and make sure you're really right. And if you really are, then don't lose it. Like to hold on to it like a dog in, in a good way, uh, because most new ventures and new innovative ideas, the world does reject. Like nobody, I felt like for ThriveWorks, even we're six years in and we have a lot of success. I still feel like 
most people in our closest circles don't fully see what you know the founders can see like we can see something that others can't so you sometimes you have to just stay dogged for years about what you know is right but you need to make sure you're right <laughs> and you need to constantly be bringing in new input um work ethic you man you can never have too much work ethic of just hard work serving others in that work in your early career i tell people like it's totally cool to go work at mcdonald's like if you're going to sit on your hiney and play video games or you can go work at mcdonald's like go work at mcdonald's man like like learn how to work and to like overcome things that you don't like <laughs> it will serve yeah, that's so true. well well, because Mike, I think what you said too, you know, I mean, you, you talked there in, in that advice there about, um, you know, discovering your purpose, basically your why um, and what, you know, you could be a, a young, um, maybe you're in high school or college or maybe out of college for that matter. And you're working at a job that you think is sort of a dead end job. Maybe it's McDonald's, maybe it's something else. And you're, you could be asking yourself, what is my purpose, right? Like my purpose is this and I'm working at McDonald's, right? Um, and so, but I think it's important that those, those are steps. Those are, those are, you know, it's building work ethic, it's building character and it's going to get you to that point, you know? And so and every job, I mean, I like what you said earlier, uh, when you were, I think, uh, uh, at the photocopy machine at the white house, right. Hey, not the most glamorous thing I really wanted to be doing at the white house, but, um, dang it, I was going to be the best photocopier and I was going to, forget about calling service 50 times. I'm going to figure out this machine myself. Problem solving, right? I feel like I, I remember when I was first semester in college in Orlando working at Taco Bell. And I was thinking, what am I doing working at Taco Bell like in the middle of college? Um, but I was like, I'm going to make this drive-through the best, fastest drive-through. I, I mastered it in a couple months. Okay. <laughs> and, yeah, and, uh, exactly. and I was and making like 550 an hour. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, but, but I think in those little things, it's kind of like getting creative with yourself um, and, and trying to, uh, to do that. But one of the things I also liked what you said here was, uh, was a lot of reflection and journaling that go goes along with that. You know, earlier this year, I read um, Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights. By the way, I highly recommend it probably. And also, if you like audible books, best audible book I ever read, because he, or listened to, I should say, because he reads it it's his own story and he's an actor. So he's fantastic at it. But um, one of the things he did from the time he was 15 years old and he just turned like 50 recently, he said from the time he was 15 years old, he journaled almost every day, something like that. Crazy. And he never read them again. He just journaled and put them in a stack, put them in the stack. Well, when he was getting close to being 50 years old, he was actually looking for somebody to help him ghostwrite his autobiography. And he, he found someone that had done some great work, I think, at the New York Times, but they had a policy where they weren't allowed to you know, work with celebrities or something uh, to do that kind of stuff. And him and his wife just looked at each other and he said, I got that look for my wife and she knew exactly what I needed to do. I needed to go back to my journals. And he actually went and spent time with his journals. Like he went off away from his family for like 10 days in like a cabin in Arizona or something. And he said, oh, my God, for the first couple of days, I was just crying because I forgot about all this stuff. All these emotions started coming out. Um, but anyway, it served him well to write his book, to remember some things that impacted him that were part of his journey. And I loved that book because I love the journey of people. And I, lo I love the journey of Mike Menina and uh, where, where you're at right now and where you're, where you're still going. Um, and so we're going to continue following your journey, Mike. 
And uh, again, if people want to connect with you, I know thrivefarmers.com and thriveworks.org are some places. Anything else we should leave our audience with? Oh, man, I'm just grateful to be with you. If you've listened this long, the one of you who have done that, uh, thank you. And I hope the the story is encouraging. We're all on our own journey. Uh, everyone's is going to look different. Uh, but I praise God for uh, what he's had me on. And thanks for letting me share a little bit. Well, thanks, Mike, for being an agent of innovation and being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. We will see you real soon. City came, they're putting up houses like six or seven where they used to be one. Made me an offer that I had to consider, but I should have just turned and run. So we've got one in the fifth grade and another right behind it. They think the universe is just North Carolina. All I can think about's the doorway in the kitchen. It's covered up with notches, names, and inches Cause there's a million ways that you can build a house And as many you can use to tear it down You can fill it up with treasure that you find along the road But love's the only way Lady at the bank said I'd be foolish not to sell Most of my neighbors had appointments there as well All I can think about is Judas kissing Jesus And giving back the 30 silver pieces Cause there's a million ways that you can build a house And as many you can use to tear it down You can't fill it up with treasure that you find Love's the only way to build a home Love's the only way to build a home I wrote a letter to my kids Hoping someday they'd forgive what daddy did When it was finished I just threw it in the trash Cause the answer I was looking for was right there in my hand there's a million ways that you can build a house And as many you can use to tear it down You can't fill it up with treasure that you find along the road But love's the only way to build a home Love's the only way to build a home